Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast, presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, with additional support from the Indiana Soybean Alliance and the Indiana Corn Marketing Council. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, glad to have you along. And today we tackle a topic that is important to every farming operation, and that is the finances, specifically soil health expenses and how you talk to your ag lender about those expenses. And I've got a couple of folks here to chat with me about it. First up, Ken Rulin. Ken is a farmer, and I'm going to let Ken introduce himself here. But Ken, you've been doing cover crops and soil health practices for a very long time. Yeah, Eric. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, the, you know, we started no-tilling in 82, so a long time ago. Started cover crops about 14 years ago at this point. Uh, we're a, uh, like to introduce ourselves as a commercial uh, number two yellow corn and uh, soybean farm. So we're not doing any of the uh, ex- exotic stuff, just a very, very straightforward commercial farm, really focused on economics and profitability and long-term soil health is what we consider our, 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 our advantages, our competitive advantages. So farm about 7,000 acres, North Central Indiana, um, and uh, family's been here since 1869, so we've been, been around for a while. Been at it for a long time there in North Central Indiana. I also want to welcome in Keith Burns. Keith, give us an idea of uh, who you are, where you're from, and and who it is you work for. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Appreciate that. <clears throat> um, I'm from South Central Nebraska. Uh, my brother and I operate a about a 2,000 acre farm here. Uh, it's a farm we grew up on. So just like Ken, our our family's been here for more than 100 years, uh, farming and working the the land here. Uh, we've been no-tilling since, uh, well, my brother started experimenting with it uh, probably in the, the mid-80s. Uh, I taught school for 10 years before I came back in the late 90s, and then we pretty much have been 100% no-till ever since then. We started down the cover crop path in 2008. We did some experiments, really liked what we saw, uh, saw a lot of potential and benefits, so we started a cover crop seed company. Uh, we named it Green Cover Seed. Started that in 2009, and it's uh, been on a, a pretty fast growth curve. We've been on a, a pretty steep learning curve, and uh, it, it's, it's just been a great ride. It's been a lot of fun to not only learn about soil health and what cover crops are doing, but you know, probably one of the biggest benefits, and, and it may be kind of an unfair advantage for us, is we just get to meet so many cool people because we get invited to speak at different places, and, and it's just such a blessing to be able to have those connections with all these people who are significantly smarter and more experienced than us. But our job is, is to take that intelligence and that experience and then be able to share it with someone else who may not get the chance to meet that person. So uh, that we're very heavily an education-based company. We sell seed, uh, but we give away a lot of education for free, I guess you could say. Very good. Keith, thank you for joining us. And Ken, thank you for joining us as well. And again, we're, we're talking about some of the economics today, and really, we want to talk about what this conversation with your loan officer should sound like as you're trying to explain some of these conservation practices, and it's 
It's no secret. It's been a rough few years for farmers. Many survive year to year through operating loans. Uh, Ken, I'll start with you. From a strictly financial and economic perspective, for someone newer to a soil health practice, how do you even begin to explain this to a loan officer? Oh, that's a that's a pretty good question, Eric. And, and I think um, I think first of all, you have to believe it. Um, we don't really explain it to our loan officers. We tell our loan officers why this is what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then. And of course, that conversation becomes a bit of an explanation. Um, but in reality, um, you know, we, we're really focused on being a low-cost producer. And, and the way you get there is by doing an awful lot of things right, right? I mean, you, you just don't walk in and do one thing. Um, and so from our perspective, uh, especially in the Eastern Corn Belt, and with the way the weather patterns are changing, that probably includes Iowa at this point, you know, we get three, four or five inch rain events every every year in the winter now and Indiana right now is about 60% bare dirt. I mean, it's just economically not very smart. <laughs> and so for us, we're just talking about keeping the soil we have. We use less fertilizer than everybody else. And we have higher available phosphorus than anybody else. We use less potassium than anybody else. We have higher available potassium, but it's a long-term response. And so what we would say is, uh, uh, you, you need to go into this with a bit of a plan. You don't want to walk into your own officer and say, I'm going to switch all 2000 acres for the first time to a 16 away cover crop mix. But there are an awful lot of ways to learn from others, do this incrementally, and, and, and just adopt some practices that have a positive first year economic impact. Well, you mentioned having a first year economic impact. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that we hear from from producers is you know i'm really thinking about this cover crop thing i'm really thinking about this no-till thing uh but you know upfront costs initial costs how, how do how do i get it to where it outweighs that that upfront cost and what do you say to those producers well i i, th I think you just kind of have to uh, we like to say follow the facts as opposed to what you think so most people in our area that are not planting cover crops are burning about $32 an acre doing fall chisel plowing. I mean, that's twice what we put in everything and our fields are green. I mean, fly into Indianapolis, <laughs> you fly over our farm, it's pretty easy to see. We're the weird ones, we're green year round. So uh, I, I think the thing to come back to is there's ways to do this that aren't expensive. You know, we have a, an old 1550 John Deere drill we plant 5,000 acres with, run the tires off of it every year. So you, know, you can you can hire somebody to plant, you know, custom plant some stuff in seven and a half inch rows, which we think is important. Um, and then we're using a lot lower seeding rates than some people because we want it to be green year round, but we don't want it to be a mat. So I think I think the thing is 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 get with some people that uh, you know the, the soil health uh, efforts have put together, some mentors, some things like that. And you can, you can just to start adopting things such as 30 pounds of cereal rye following corn stalks, you can plant it all the way up through Thanksgiving in Indiana, for example. And, and we just get a, a, every year or two bushel or more yield increase and it's probably because we're suppressing some of the, the, the bad stuff and the, the viruses and things in the soil. So um, we just think that there are systems and practices that you can bring to the farm relatively cheaply 
Um, you can get EQIP grants to help do things. There's, there's a lot of things out there that the government is trying to do a lot of incentivizing for farmers to do things. And so we would argue, if you're not getting the EQIP money, uh, you're leaving money on the table. And why do that? But I, I just think there's a lot of practices that make a lot of sense in terms of cost reduction. We've done the math now for a long, long time. We're $100 an acre cheaper than conventional agriculture. So you can afford to spend a lot on seed and you still come out ahead. Uh, and that comes from um, nutrient discharge in our tile lines is dramatically less than conventional tillage because we've got plants growing. It's, you know, it's not, it's not flushing out of the system in the creeks in the winter time. So it becomes very complex, Eric, but just very simply starting out, there, there are places you can put cover crops that'll help the field, that'll help the farm, you can get experience. And then as the soil gets softer and softer and more and more mellow, you start to see all the other benefits that other people talk about that are longer term. Keith, how can you justify an expense that may not have a, a proven return like cover crops? Well, Eric, I, th I think that, you know, like in anything else, <clears throat> you start with the easy stuff, you know, pick, pick that low hanging fruit first. And if I was <clears throat> counseling a <clears throat> first year farmer who's trying to convert over to some of these practices and they're going in and talking to their lender, that by far the easiest argument to make, and, and this will just resonate all the way through, and, and Ken kind of mentioned it, it's, it's simply coming in after you harvest your corn and plant cereal rye, uh, and then follow that with beans. That's it's just really easy to do. Uh, it's not that expensive, and the weed control benefits alone, especially you know all these lenders, they're smart enough to know that we've got issues with uh, herbicide resistant weeds. And you know when we were just simply no tilling, mare's tail was one of our biggest weeds that we fought year after year. And that mare's tail started getting resistant to several different types of chemistries and it got more and more expensive to try to control. Once we started using cover crops, specifically cereal rye, and it doesn't take that much. Ken's right, you know, 45, 50 pounds of cereal rye, we'll get, we'll get literally 99% control on mare's tail in, in the spring. Mare's tail is not a great competitor. There's just nothing else growing when it starts in the spring, but cereal rye beats them all. Cereal rye will, you can plant it, uh, we'll plant it all the way through Thanksgiving here as well. It germinates at 34 degrees, so you can plant it late. You know, I, I get tired of farmers saying it's too late to plant a cover crop. It, it's too late to plant most things, but it's almost never too late to plant cereal rye. We planted it the middle of December before and had a good enough stands in the spring that we actually harvested it for grain production. But, but that cereal rye, you know, $10 worth of cereal rye seed can easily save you $20 worth of herbicides in the spring trying to burn down some of those resistant weeds. I mean, that's pretty easy math for anybody to understand. And the bankers, they'll get on top of that really, really fast. So that's the place to start. It, it's easy. It's foolproof. <clears throat> you know, one of the issues with using cereal rye, it, it's very aggressive growing in the spring and it and it's really gonna suck up any leftover nitrogen you have there, which is a good thing because like Ken said, you don't want that going out your tile lines or running into the streams. Uh, but I had a corn that requires additional management to make sure you don't leave that corn a little hungry for that early season nitrogen. For beans, that's a good thing. That's what we want for beans. We want to force those beans to nodulate early and nodulate often. And then when that cereal rye kind of decomposes later in the year, it will release that nitrogen 
and give the, give those beans kind of a mid to late season uh, bump in some nitrogen. And, and that may be part of where we're seeing these yield increases, you know, from using a soil health system like that. So I, that's the absolute first thing I would go into a lender with is just lay out those numbers. They're very simple. There's tons of, of backup data on that. You know, it's it just works and it works across wide, wide areas. Uh, very, very rarely do you see that one fail. So start with that easy stuff and then you move up from there. You know, once you get some successes with that, uh, then then you start going, okay, I really liked how that worked. You know, what now what can I plant into my beans to come into corn with next? And, and that, 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 that takes more management. It's going to cost more because you're probably going to try to add some legumes in there. Legumes seeds always cost more than grasses. And, and so don't do that at first. Do, do, the, do the rye into corn and then follow it with beans and, and you can really get some good successes early on. Ken, is it your experience uh, with with lenders that, that what Keith just said there, you know, that, that they kind of eat that up when you're talking about some of the, the cost differences that, that you're seeing there? I think real lenders really eat up the fact when people know what their plan is and, and they explain it. I think that's really the winning strategy. Um, you know, I mean, our business plan is a pretty big textbook for seven companies, um, but uh, I think that they really appreciate when you can tie it together um, with other, a long-term perspective. So in our case, some of our lenders have the farmland mortgages and we're able to show them that we're increasing the, the our carbon content of the soil. Um, actually, we're making their, their asset worth more long-term. And obviously you're driving the yields up long-term as you get more and more carbon in the soil. And the science on this is basically unassailable. I mean, it's just the way it is. So when we look at that, um, I think if you can come in and just talk about uh, uh, if you have three or four fields that are pretty sloping, you know, it's a pretty strong argument that they shouldn't be buried around. Um, and then to follow up on what Keith said a minute ago about getting into some of the more advanced cover crops, we actually think the cover crops after beans going to corn are, are awfully easy. But that's us, right? But, you know, we, we like to have uh, rapeseed in that mix so that we have something growing. See, so I, I want to plant into green rapeseed. We'll have oats in that mix. The oats are winter kill. Eight out of 10 years in Indiana, two out of 10 years, it doesn't freeze hard enough in Indiana to kill oats. Um, and then as Keith said, that lets us suppress some of the early growth. And when we come in and spray like, like post planting or something like that to kill the rapeseed, um, we've got some, uh, some soil that's basically perfectly covered with the plants that are gonna decompose. And so we're, we're reducing the amount of carbon that is burning off from all those activities. But I think when you sit down with the lender, Eric, I think you just walk through this. Okay, you know, we got these fields that are really, really hilly. And if they're really tight clays, um, you can delude yourself all you want, but those farms don't, don't yield as much in conventional tillage. There's like 30 years of yield history now from the Purdue East Central Indiana research farm, those fields do better in a, a limited tillage and when you put a, a covering mechanism or a soil health program in place, they actually yield more and, 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 and any kind of, a, the other thing we're not talking about is um, when you get some of the fields in the condition that, that we've got them in over 25 years, we don't take a yield hit in droughts. I mean, you know, we just, 
the soil, you got you got root channels so we can grow roots six feet deep. And in Indiana, there's always water down there. You know, so in 2012, we were only 3% off of trend and yield for corn. And at eight bucks a bushel, we've paid for all the cover crop seed for the next 15 years. So I think that was the, when we sit down with a banker, we want to tie in this. Okay, short term, I'm not going to lose any cash uh, if I do this in a, in a systematic way. But long term, I'm building in an assurances, of, uh, better assurances of a, of a more consistent cash flow. And that's really what bankers get concerned about, right? Because you've got to have your 1.3 to 1 current ratio or they, get, they just lose it. When you build a long-term consistent approach, and so take what Keith said. I mean, Keith is so on the money on this. Start with this. And our plan for year two is going to be this. Um, for me, I would, I, I really think you got to do the cereal rye and the corn socks, and you've got to do oats, radishes, and rapeseed in the corn. And then all you all you're left doing is planting into rapeseed. And as Keith will tell you, you can cut rapeseed with a toothpick. So I, I can plant through there through 12 inch tall rapeseed and never lose seed depth or seed to soil contact. If I tried to do that into some other cover crops like cereal rye. Yeah, I've got to really focus on a really, really good corn planter with really good technology. And some people don't have those. So we, we actually, this is a sidebar that shouldn't be part of this, but we actually don't see any yield drag planting into four foot tall cereal rye, by the way. But yes, you've got to. Sort of yeah, that's because you're, you're managing your nitrogen, right? Yeah, yeah. We're actually spreading some, uh, some nitrogen in the fall on those fields. Uh, to, kind of, to kind of super rich in it. And so that's part of our program for when you take over a farm that's abused and they all have been basically, you throw a lot of money at them to fix them quickly. And that's part of that. You know, you, you, you do stuff that you wouldn't do maybe every field. And that's not the point of this. So I'm sorry. Moving on. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's perfect. I mean, we're, we're here to talk and we're here to educate about soil health and cover crops. And I think that those are good points, Ken. And Keith, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I wanted to just follow up on what Ken was saying about the the drought year of, of 2012. You know, one one of the one of the biggest concerns people have about cover crops is they're going to use too much moisture. And and certainly as you move west and get into more arid environments, that that certainly is a concern. But I don't think it's nearly as big a concern as what a lot of people think. So take that drought year of 2012, for example. You know, Ken was talking about, you know, their yields were not that far under their average where a lot of people in the county probably didn't even harvest. But again, going back to that study that that Sarah has done on, on the impact of cover crops on yields of both corn and soybeans, the highest year that was ever recorded was 2012. Uh, corn yields were almost 10% higher where a farmer used cover crops before it, as opposed to where they did not. Soybean yields almost 12% higher. And, and that's, that's huge because a lot of years, you know, it's two, three, 4%, and it's still a good increase and it still pays for the cost of the seed. But like, like Ken was saying, you know, in those drought years, prices are going to be up anyway, and it really helps hold those yields. And the reason is when you're using cover crops, when you're using these soil health practices, you're, you're building your organic matter levels, you're building soil structures, because even in a drought year, a lot of times you're going to get a big rain uh, and, and a lot of times people miss it. You know, we were very dry here this year. 
we got about a third of our rainfall for the entire year in two days over Memorial Day weekend. We got almost seven inches of rain and we only had 20 inches for the whole year. So if you couldn't catch that, if you couldn't catch and keep the majority of that, you were really in trouble. Now, you know, our yields were still down because it was very dry, but we caught a whole lot more of that rain than many of our neighbors did because we had the soil structure, we had the cover crops, and we had better organic matter levels in order to store that water once you catch it. Because it doesn't do you any good to catch it and get it in the ground if you've got no organic matter there to hold it. It's just, just gonna percolate down and, and disappear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the thought that cover crops use too much moisture, they, they certainly use moisture to have to grow, but the benefits that they give you afterwards with, you know, better infiltration and less evaporation and better water holding capacity, those things all make up for the water consumed by that cover crop usage. Again, you got to take that with a caveat when you're out west and your average rainfall is 14 to 16 inches. You can still use cover crops. You just have to manage them differently. And, and you can't do like what Ken is doing. You can't plant right into a cover crop and go right to your next cash crop. You need kind of a recovery period in there. Yeah, Keith's dead on the money though. It becomes very, very regional and very specific to the farm. Um, I like to tell people and almost nobody wants to believe us, but you know, where we live, we're 30 miles north of Indianapolis, we get on average two inches less rainfall on our farms than the Indianapolis International Airport gets. And so everybody needs to kind of understand their climatology. And if you happen to be in a, a drier strip, then anything we can do to get more water into the soil when we get the four inch rain like Keith is talking about is huge. Um, and, and, and keeping, uh, keeping it on the farm and not in not not having the mud in the rivers, right? Because mud in the rivers, pure carbon, or almost all of it. I mean, the, the good stuff is what washes off because it's the lightest. <laughs> so, anything that we can do to keep topsoil on those farms and keep that carbon to hold the water and the organic matter to hold the water, uh, and that's where we think we really start to see some of the big benefits is in our rougher soils. Uh, we'll admit right off in that the 10% of the farm that's just simply perfect soil-wise basically has Iowa dirt. Um, yes, in a perfect growing season, we're probably going to yield less. Well, I'll guarantee you we will. But on the other 40 or 50% of that farm in Indiana that's a lot rougher soil type, we're going to yield more every year. And so I, I think that, you know, if, if you've got a flat black 40 that's below the water table and it's not pattern tiled, for goodness sakes, don't try to do this. But if you've got a pretty normal rolling Indiana field, uh, it's kind of hard not to win doing this, if that makes some sense, Eric. So again, it becomes very regional, very specific. As Keith says, out West, you have to think about different, different factors, different constraints. Um, so we would encourage people to mentor with their local offices, you know, their local NRCS people, or, or work with people like Keith who see the whole country. You know, we, we've learned so much from the, some of these uh, Oregon ryegrass and uh, green cover and people like that who are seen and, you know, they're actually out visiting hundreds of farmers and learning, learning what doesn't work, learning where some of the challenges are. Uh, there's a lot of benefit in that. So, so even the first year in, I think you need to be sharing with lenders, back to your question, Eric, I think you'd be sharing with lenders. Okay, these are the people I'm working with. You know, I've got Keith Burns flying in from Nebraska to set my program up with me. 
So the odds of me doing something bad just went way down. Or we're, or we're going we're gonna to drive out to Ruland's Farm for their annual field day, and we're going to set up a program after talking to Rodney. Um, you know, I'm really blessed to have a lot of great family and, and some other non-family team members out here that manage things better than I do a lot of the time. But, you know, I think when you, again, present this as a plan to the lender, right? We, we, okay, we know we have erosion, and it's huge in the eastern Corn Belt. So this is how we're going to try to address that. And by addressing that, we're going to have to spend less for phosphorus. We're going to get higher bean yields kind of out of the chute. And we're not going to make a huge mistake, right? I mean, yellow corn in June is a huge mistake. It's not really the fault of the cover crop or the no-till. It's the fault of the management of the system. And so we, and we make those mistakes. Trust me, I'm not. <laughs> our, our biggest yield restraint still this year is operator error. <laughs> so I mean, that's just the way farming is, right? Yeah, Ken, I love what uh, Steve Groff says about cover crops. He says they'll they'll make a good farmer better and a bad farmer worse. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's because it's all about that extra management. Are, are you a good enough manager to apply these principles of soil health, these principles that, you know, are demonstrated again and again, you know, throughout nature and, and natural and native systems? Can you apply those to your farming operation? And the ones that can figure out how to do that can drastically reduce their inputs and increase their profitability. That's going to do it for this edition of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, but our conversation with Ken Rulin and Keith Burns is not over. This was just part one. Part two will be released next week as we continue this conversation about what your conversation with the ag lender should sound like when you're discussing soil health expenses. That's the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative with additional support from the Indiana Soybean Alliance and the Indiana Corn Marketing Council. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. This has been a production of Who's Your Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.